Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome, and thank you for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. I'm glad that you have joined us for another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. I'm sitting in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Mother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. Now, Pastor, two quick questions before we get to the topic for the evening. The first one, if you recall, at the end of last week's program, there was a question about whether pastors should be continuing to study, and you were saying, yes, they should, always studying, always learning. Someone sent in a question in the last minute of the program last week. We didn't get a chance to ask you it, and it comes from Anguilla. If a pastor is searching the Internet, is he doing anything wrong? Um, I'm not too sure specifically what the person is referring to, but if um, they mean searching the Internet in order to help with his sermon preparation or to get material to preach, I personally don't have a problem with it. Um, I think it's one of the great sources of information. Uh, a lot of pastors don't have a good library. Uh, on any Internet, you can get a, a vast volume of books and libraries that you can actually use. Um but I think if you take the, the message and you want to make it yours and add something to it, um, change something, um, my my contention has always been not to reinvent the wheel. I am not an originalist either. I depend a lot on my reading and my study uh, to come up with, with messages. So if you're talking about using the Internet as a resource, I don't see any particular problem with that. And the other question came in throughout the week, and it is, Mr. Murphy, who is L, capital E, capital L, mentioned in Genesis 14.22, and is it a Hebrew word? Mr. Abram saw L in Genesis 17.1, and he lived and became Abraham. So man saw God and lived? Um. The word El is one of the biblical names for God. Um, I, I hope you know that there are several different names in the Bible that are used to um, describe God. And each one of those names reveals some aspect about God's character, God's attributes. And normally it is in some covenant relationship with some person uh, that a, a biblical name is used. This word El, for example, is used over 410 times uh, in the Bible. In Genesis alone, um, it is used 15 times. 
In chapter 14, you'll find it mentioned four times. In chapter 3, it's mentioned three times. It's also mentioned chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 21, chapter 28, chapter 31, chapter 43, chapter 48, chapter 49. So 15 different times you'll find the word El uh, mentioned there, that name. Uh, the word El itself is a Hebrew word, and it comes from another Hebrew word called Ayel. And that word means strength, it means strong, it means mighty. If you have a strong concordance, I would recommend that you look up the word and follow the code that gives you a number going to the back of the concordance, and you'll see that it gives you the deri- uh, derivation of the word. It tells you what that word means, and it gives you kind of etymology of the word, and it also helps you to source where that word comes from. Um, Many times in the Bible, this word El is seldom found by itself. It's normally found in some kind of a compound name. For example, El Shaddai, which means the Almighty God, or El Eon, which means the Most High, or sometimes El Roy, which means God sees. So it's one of those words that are used, generally speaking, in some kind of a compound sense. In the passage you mentioned there in um, Hebrews, sorry, um, Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, uh, where it is mentioned, um, the word El, and then you mention in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, that Abraham uh, saw El. Now, let me just say that when it says that he saw God, it doesn't mean that he saw God in its essence. Uh, he saw God in a manifestation, what it might be called a theophany. And no man can see God and live, and the Bible tells us, because God in its essence, uh, he's unapproachable. But God has manifested himself in theophanies and different forms in the Bible. And so when it said that uh, Abraham, uh, God appeared to Abraham, clearly it means that God appeared to Abraham in some kind of uh, theophany, a form, not in his uh, supreme essence. So um, that word, El, then, has to do with the might and the strength of God, the power, the omnipotence of God. And it's one of those uh, Hebrew words that are used to describe God. By the way, the two books that you'll find that word in most frequently are the Psalms and the, and the book of Job. You'll huh. find that word most often in, in, the, in those two books. So I hope I've answered the question. And by the way, one of the reasons why we um, study the names of God, and by the way, there's several books have been written on the names of God and the meaning of those names and the application uh, to our daily lives. Uh, because the Bible tells us three things about God's name. Uh, it tells us we should honor God's name in uh, Exodus chapter 20. So we should not use it in profanity. We should not use it in slang. Uh, and we must not abuse uh, the name. So the name of God is significant because God said we must honor his name. The second thing, of course, that the psalmist tells us very often, we must praise the name of God. You find it in Psalm 48.1, uh, 48.10. You find it in Psalms 8, 1. You find it in Psalms 75 and Psalms 76. We were uh, encouraged and exhorted to to uh, praise God. And then the third thing we're told about God's name is that it offers protection. It's a strong tower. You find it in Psalms 18, 1, 10. Of course, the word name, uh, the name always spoke of the individual, the person. So when you use a biblical name, you're actually referring to God, but under uh, some kind of an epithet that signifies some meaning that has relevance to the individual, especially in a covenant relationship. Now, last week, we began discussing Bible prophecy, and it was pretty much an overview of Bible prophecy for the 90-minute program. 
And there was a lot of information that was covered. Now, Pastor, you discussed two competing schools of interpretation, the literal and the allegorical school, and discussed the the different details of each one. But my question to start off the program tonight as we get back into this topic of Bible prophecy is, are there any special rules that you would follow specifically for interpreting Bible prophecy? Generally speaking, um, there are five rules that uh, help to govern the interpretation of prophecy. Uh, I mentioned before we must not spiritualize the text. We must not try to sensationalize the text either, nor should we try to allegorize the text. We just need to interpret the text, and there are certain rules that would help you to do that. Uh, The first one I mentioned last time, but you call this the golden rule, and that is when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Uh, and, and I'm saying that to say this, that when you're interpreting prophecy, try to use every word and understand it in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal sense of the word. And uh, the unless the context indicates that the word has some symbolic meaning, interpret it in the normal, regular, ordinary sense and literal sense of the word. And that's a key thing to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, by the way, when we talk about um, using the literal sense or the normal sense, even in our English language, that does not mean that we exclude figures of speech. Uh, in our English, we've got figures of speech, and that, that does not exclude symbolism as well. But generally speaking, you will know from the context if this is a, a, a kind of a figure of speech, if it is some kind of a symbol. Uh, so the, you, you still need a literal sense to understand that there is some kind of an allegory, some kind of a uh, figure of speech that is there. But, Pastor... The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and in Greek. So did is some of that uh, literal sense lost in the translation, do you believe? Uh, every translation has its inadequacies. Um, there's no way you can translate from one language to another without losing some of its meaning, some of its flavor, mm-hmm. uh, even some of its emphasis, should I say this, because according to the Greek structure, you can know the word or to know which word is emphasized, and sometimes that is not even emphasized in the translation of the English Bible. So uh, you do lose uh, some aspect of it, and that's why, by the way, you need to uh, sometimes check the Hebrew or check the Greek. And if you're not competent in either Hebrew or Greek, there are certain. We who are English have got so many aids today to help us. If you don't understand the Greek grammar or the Hebrew grammar, you can purchase books that will identify the word, code the word, tell you what that word means, and it will give you the definition of those particular grammatical terms and what's the significance of those terms so that even though you're not an expert, you may seem to be an expert because you're actually honing in on all the skills that that, that have been passed on. But um, that's why, by the way, it's always wise to understand that every translation we have is just a translation. The inspired word is the autographs, the originals. And uh, in any translation, whether it be the King James, whether it be the North American Standard, the ESV, NIV, there will always be some element that is missing um, because you cannot... It's like you, if you try to do French or you try to do uh, Spanish to translate uh, one from one to the other, there are certain nuances that um, you can't fully do that. If you check the Amplified version of the Bible, for example, you notice that they explain one word and give you several adjectives and several pronouns and and, and, uh, several adverbs to bring out the fuller meaning. They expand on it because the the, the Greek word uh, could mean so much more. You can't do a word-for-word equivalent. 
uh, for the Greek language because uh, that's why you need to study the etymology of Greek words to understand the fullness of its meaning. So to answer your question, um, there is something lost in translations, but we have an adequate translations. Most of the translations are fairly adequate in terms of giving us a grasp and understanding what is there. But there are times when you need to go back into the Greek check up the word, and that's where your concordance comes in, your lexicon comes in, your grammar comes in to help you with the interpretation of the Bible. So I have one more sobering question sure. in relation <coughs> to what you said. You said that we as English-speaking people have so many resources at our fingertips. Do you believe that we as English-speaking people will in some ways be judged to a different level than those who may not have as many resources? Because oh. there's a verse in the Bible that says, to whom much is given, much is expected, or much is required. I don't doubt that for one moment. The more light a person has, the more understanding a person has, the more responsibility they have. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be held uh, accountable. There are several verses in the Bible that indicates that. So we'd be judged according to what light we have. And we in the English-speaking world um, has got so many tools to assist us in understanding the Bible and teaching the Bible and preaching the Bible that um, I have no doubt that in that day of judgment uh, we will be held more accountable because we've been given so much more than other parts of the world. That's sobering. Sorry, I interrupted you from where you were going as far as the five uh, the five rules. Yeah. yeah, the first one I mentioned is the golden rule of uh, taking it, the Bible in its normal, literal, ordinary, usual sense. And uh, unless the context indicates otherwise, that's how you interpret The second one is a law of double reference. And what I mean by the law of def- double reference, there are many times in a passage where things are run together, but there's a massive period of time between that is not mentioned. And uh, if you're not aware of that, you can misinterpret Scripture. For example, if you look at uh, Zechariah chapter 9 and, uh, and verse 9 for, for just a moment, uh, this is a... If you look at that passage and you look at Zechariah uh, 9 and look at verse 9 and 10, there's a tremendous gap between those two verses, but you would, would never know that because it's not stated there. Uh, in, in, in 9, you have it? Yeah, I've got okay. it. Can you read it for me, please? Yeah. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, a colt the foal of an ass. Now who's that referring to? Jesus the Messiah. Christ. You yeah. remember in Matthew chapter 21 verse 5 that same verse is quoted when Jesus was going into Jerusalem and it was called Palm Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so this is a reference to Christ but if you look at the next verse now verse number 20, uh, 10. 10 and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river even to the ends of the earth. You see, there's a massive gap. One is talking about his second coming, when he returns and he um, brings all the Gentile powers to the knees, and he establishes his kingdom, and he, righteousness reigns. But you notice between those two verses, you're not told it's the first coming and the second coming. They just blend together. So we're living between those. We're two. living between those spirits. But, and that's why I said sometimes you have to understand the principle of double reference. Mm. By the way, this is why the Jews uh, mistook 
uh, the Messiah and rejected Christ because they could only see the king coming, uh, the one that would rule and dominate the world. But first of all, he comes as a dying lamb, as a Messiah who would die for the sins of the people. So they missed the whole conception that there are two aspects of the Messiah. They're not two Messiahs. There's one Messiah. But the Messiah comes first to deal with the whole problem of human sin. Then he returns to uh, bring the world to its knees to establish his kingdom, what is called the kingdom of righteousness. But there's no indication in between those two verses that you've got thousands of years between his first coming and his second coming. Already we're living 2,000 years between verse uh, verse 9 and verse 10. And he hasn't returned yet, but when he does, he's going to come back to the second coming. That's what I call the, the, the law of double reference. You need to be aware of that. Let me give you another example. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 for just a moment. And uh, read verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Referring to Christ, remember in Luke chapter 4, he took up the scriptures and read the same passage, Spirit of the Lord upon me, anointed me. So the first two verses refer to Christ and his first coming. He is the branch, he is the root of Jesse. He's both the, uh, the descendant of, of um, um, Jesse, uh, but he's also the root of Jesse because he created Jesse. So this one that is coming, uh, and uh, the description is given there in verse number 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do all. And, and then in, if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, you find that the exact quotation is used by our Lord. And then he said to those people, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your sight. And of course, it took up stones to stone him because he's making this massive claim that he's the Messiah. But read the next three verses, the next um, verse 3 to verse 5. Yeah. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But his righteousness shall be judged. The, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And verse 5. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness shall be the girdle of his reins. Again, he's referring to his second coming. Notice that he's going to smite the, the earth with his um, um, verse number, um, yeah. Four? Uh, he'll smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Is referring to when he comes back, because you check in the book of Revelation, a rod comes out of his mouth and smites the earth. So you've got the first coming in verse 1 and 2, and then you've got the others referring to his, his, his second return, when he will smite the earth. But again, there's no indication there that they're referring to two different events. You've got one blended into the other because it's referring to the same person, but two different stages of his coming. His first coming, and then his second coming. Uh, that's what I mean by the law of double reference. Uh, you need to take that into consideration when you're dealing with uh, prophecies because two events are blended as if it's one picture and there's no indication of the separation of time between the two. Those are two good examples. The third principle is the law of recurrence. 
And what I mean by that, there are some passages in, in scriptures where um, it gives you a detail on a particular event in one one chapter, and then another chapter comes and refers to the same event but fills in the details. Mm-hmm. A classic example of this is in uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1 to 23, you've got the invasion of the northern forces and the confederacy between Russia and her allies coming to, against Israel and how she is destroyed. Then when you come to chapter 39, the same thing is restated, but much many more details are given into it. And that's what I mean by law of recurrence. You mention one particular event, but then another chapter is used to fill in those events and give you greater details. They're not contradicting each other. It's just giving more details. Another example of this is Isaiah chapter 30 and Isaiah chapter 31. Uh, this gives the account of the fall of Judah and the alliance between Judah and Egypt in chapter 30. Then in chapter 31, it repeats the same prophecy, but what it does, it gives you more details of how this happened. This is called the law of, of, of uh, recurrence. With Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, it's what I mean. Yeah, okay. same thing, because in Genesis chapter 1, they're not two creations. Some people yeah. use that. Is, is, is what happened, Genesis chapter 1, makes a general statement of God created, and then in chapter 2, he gives you all the details of how this particular thing happened. The same thing, the law of recurrence. Uh, but in prophecy, for sure, um, um, there's no contradiction. It's just that you're giving filling in more details. Are there specific words or signs that we should look for in reading that would say that would warn us? Okay, this is a double reference, or this is recurrence. I think uh, you would know for the double reference. Again, it depends on your knowledge of Scripture. For example, if we did not know about the first coming and the second coming, that He's going to come with a rod to smite the earth, or we read in Revelations. If I'm not cognizant of what's in Revelations. Mm-hmm. I would find it difficult as a person reading the Scripture to not see the connection. And that's why in, in studying Bible prophecy, you need a, a, a broad scope of the Bible. You need to have a general idea of the Bible. And you will never understand Revelations, for example, unless you understand the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel. If you don't understand Ezekiel and Daniel, you'll never grasp the book of Revelation because most of the imagery that you find in Revelation, you find it either in Daniel or you find it in Ezekiel. And that's why it's important to... Um, to have a, a broad knowledge of Scripture when you're interpreting prophecy. The fourth uh, principle, the first rule, is the law of context. And what I mean by that is that every word has its meaning defined by its context. And there's only one correct meaning of any particular word or any particular verse. A verse can't mean more than one thing. It has to be mean what it means in that context. Now, it might have several applications, but it only has one meaning, and that's why you have to stick with the context to understand the meaning. Let me tell you what is important. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, for just a moment. This is a passage, by the way, that uh, people often use it in refer- reference to the Messiah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I have wounded in the house of my friends. A lot of people take that verse and say that refers to Christ. But if you look at the context, read read verse number 2 to verse number 6 and see that it has nothing to do with the Messiah. It has to do with false prophets. Read it and you see that. Verse starting in verse two, yeah. and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, 
And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother shall begot him, uh, shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begot him shall thrust him through with when he prophesieth, and it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my and then, for, then verse 6 comes. Do you see the connection? It's talking about the false prophets, and then this verse comes in, but it's all in the context you're dealing with false prophets and the fact that they will be discovered, and even their parents would not shield them, and they'll come to the point where they're admitting, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm not really a prophet, but I was taught to do this. But uh, if you take verse 6 out of its context, yeah. uh, so you've got to read the context to see what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with the Messiah there. It has to do with false prophets. And uh, if you read it together, you'll see that is within that context, dealing with false prophets. I'm saying that to say this, you can take a verse out of Scripture and make it mean anything if you avoid the context. This, by the way, is what the cults do. This is what the Jehovah's Witness do. This is what the Seventh-day Adventists do. This is what other, other groups do. They take a, one particular verse, completely ignore what comes before and what comes after, and gives a meaning that has no meaning whatsoever when you look at the context. What about for the listener who says, but Pastor, it seems like double reference and context are fighting against each other. How do you balance those two? Double? Double reference, the law of double reference, uh, where there was a large period of gap between the two verses, but it really didn't explain itself? Well, in a case like that, uh, the double reference refers to the same person. Like, for you got the first coming, the second coming. It's not two different people. When you read that context, you're referring to false prophets. So the second section would have to refer to false prophets as well, if you don't double reference. So it has to do with the, you can't, the thing is that the context also helps you know that it's dealing with the Messiah, by the way. If you look at the context, it knows you're dealing with the, the first coming, and you know that it's dealing with the second coming. So that the context actually works with this uh, concurrent uh, theory. But you can look at the uh, ignore the context and come up with a false meaning if you don't read the the whole context and understand what is happening. So it's not referring to the Messiah and the false prophets. If you read the, the context, it, the same, verse six refers to those who were in verse two to verse number five. They're not two different people you're dealing with. I hope that helps. Yeah. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.57, and for this program, we are also broadcasting on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the live video feed. If you have a question for Pastor Murphy, maybe it's on the topic of Bible prophecy, maybe it's on another topic, maybe it's something that someone asked you, or maybe you and your friends or your spouse have been discussing something and you really are concerned about what the Bible says or why it doesn't say something. Maybe you have a suggested topic that you would like us to cover in a future week. Give us a call. To be put live on the air, the phone number is one 462 7420 
If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you want to send your question anyways, please send it via WhatsApp or text message to one 268 782 Now, Pastor Murphy, uh, you gave the first four rules of interpreting prophecy. Uh, I don't know if you had anything yeah, else. Yeah, there's, there's one more that... Um, um, I call it the law of comparative biblical reference. And what I mean by that is let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you want to understand what a symbol means in the book of Revelation, you don't try to find out what it means in some kind of a secular book. You go to the Bible because the Bible explains its symbols. When the Bible talks about the key of, of David, uh, or Christ having a key in his in his um, waist, as it were, you've got to find out what's the significance of that. When the Bible speaks of a horn or a mountain, uh, and when it talks about the candlesticks, it talks about the stars in Revelation. You don't try to discover what that is by checking Gene Dixon or one of these kind of people. You go to the Bible, let the Bible interpret the Bible. When you talk about the, the, the living creatures in the book of Revelation, you go to the book of Ezekiel to find out who the living creatures are. So that's what I mean by the law of comparative biblical uh, reference. Checking uh, verses and parallel passages and checking symbols that you find in prophetic books, going to the other books of the Bible, get a concordance and see what those particular verses mean. For example, uh, the incense is the prayers of the people going up to God that God keeps. You, you, find it, you also find that in the book of Psalms, by the way. Uh, but you wouldn't if you don't didn't know that, you just puzzled about it, but if you knew the Psalms or you had a, a Bible reference to go to the Psalms, you, you'll find the, the answer to that question. So that's why I use the word, the law of comparative biblical reference. Let the Bible interpret the Bible and the symbols and the numbers that are there. Pastor, are there any key concepts that, I don't mean this to sound mystical, but that unlock prophetic teachings in Scripture? In my judgment, I think there are three real keys uh, that helps to unlock the prophetic writings, um, especially in regard to uh, the uh, world affairs and um, what's going to happen in world history. One of those concepts is what is called the time of the Gentiles. Uh, you will find reference to that, by the way, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, with Christ said, Jerusalem be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Um, you also find uh, reference to that in the book of Romans. Uh, I think the times of Denta is a key concept. What does that really mean? And what does it mean that Jerusalem be trodden on the foot until the times of Gentiles be, com uh, be complete? So we got to understand what, what we mean by the times of Gentiles. The second thing, I think, is uh, Daniel's 70 weeks. I think that's the, another key biblical passage uh, because Daniel talks about 70 weeks. And what does that mean? And how does that relate to the future? And the third um, key, I think, to understanding the prophetic writings is understanding the role that Israel plays in Bible prophecy. You can never understand uh, Bible prophecy in regards to the future unless you understand the biblical role that Israel will play. And I think those are the three things, understanding the, the times of the Gentiles, what that means, understanding Daniel's 70 weeks, and understanding the role that Israel will play in, the, in, in, in world history. I think if you don't have a grasp of those three, I can never see you understanding Bible prophecy. And we're going to delve into that time of the Gentiles in just a minute, but let me just remind you 
The phone number, the phone line is available. If you have a question for Pastor Murphy, you can go ahead and give us a call, 1-268-462-7420. We are here to answer your questions, or you can send your questions or comments to 1-268-782-1454. That's the WhatsApp or the text message number. Or you can just comment them on the Facebook Live video feed. And thank you to those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. Thank you if you're joining us on AM, FM, or on our website at www.radiolighthouse.org. Or maybe you're listening to this a couple of weeks later and on the podcast online. We are really honored that you have taken time out of your busy schedule to listen to Pastor Murphy's teaching of Scripture. All right, the time of the Gentiles. Pastor, is there one specific passage that you'd like to draw our attention to that you feel summarizes this or elaborates on it appropriately? Let me define it a little bit more, and then let's deal with the passage, I think, that will give you a a kind of concept of what it's about. When we talk about the time of the Gentiles, we're talking about a time in history when the nation of Israel is under Gentile power and dominated by Gentile power. Um, That's what we mean by the time of the Gentiles. It has a reference to Israel and the fact that she is out of the land, uh, she is conquered, she is no longer an independent entity, and she's under uh, Gentile control. This period uh, began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will end when the Roman Empire is going to be revived in what is called the ten uh, toe f- dimension with ten kings. And then the stone comes and strikes the image on the feet, and the kingdom of God is set up. But between the Babylonian captivity until the Lord returns to set up his millennial kingdom, this period is called the period of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. One of the books that really elaborates on this is the book of Daniel. And in particular, we have a panoramic survey of world history uh, in Daniel chapter 2, which explains to us the whole course of human history up until Christ returns. From the time of Babylon until Christ returns and set up his kingdom is set forth in the book of Daniel chapter 2. is elaborated later in chapter 7 and then even further in chapter 9. But I think the key passage uh, that lets you understand the course of human history and the domination of Gentile powers over Israel uh, begin in Daniel chapter 2. I wonder if we could just uh, look at that and maybe spend some time in Daniel chapter 2 to get a grasp of what this chapter is all about. In verses 1 to 23, uh, you have in Daniel chapter 2 a dream that is experienced by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you read verse number 1 for me for just a moment, uh, Nathan. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams where his spe- with his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Okay, that, that's a dream he had. Clearly, um, um, the Bible makes it clear that God had given him a dream and God is going to reveal to him what that dream is about. But here's a man who's had a dream and he's, he's troubled by what he's, he's dreaming. Uh, whatever he's seen in his dream, it has disturbed him and he can hardly sleep. He wants to know what the dream means. 
but the dream has left his memory. He can't recall specifics of what that's happening. You notice in verse number two, um, you've got not only the dream of the king, but you've got the demand of the king in verse number two. What does it say there? Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Yeah, these were what you may call the court advisors. And a lot of them were... Uh, people who practice the occult things, uh, the magicians. Uh, you remember in Exodus, you got the same thing with Moses where the magicians are called in, they're able to perform different miracles. So these are what you might call his advisors, but they're also wise men who are supposed to have insight into the future. So he makes a demand, he calls them and asks them, look, you know, I've had this dream, I need to know what this dream is about. And so he makes a demand that these people um, tell him his dream. But you notice in verse 3 and 4, the defense of the wise men. What what did they say there? And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. In verse 4, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever, tell thy servants the dream, and we shall show you the interpretation. We would probably respond the same way. He wants yeah. me to tell a dream he's forgotten. I don't have the dream. So he's found <laughs> himself where the, these guys are defending themselves, these wise men, because they don't know the dream. The king, they will, will try to interpret if the king could tell them the dream. So you've got the dream, you've got the demand of the king, you've got the defense of the wise men, and then notice the decision of the king in verse 5 to 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, This thing is gone from me, if ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your health shall be made a dunghill. But if you show me the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Yeah, the the the, the king senses that you know these are men that knew the future. Uh, they should be able to tell me my dream and interpret my dream. Then he, he decides to give them two options, basically. You tell me the dream, and you'll be honored. You, you've been elevated. If you don't tell me the dream, it means I'm going to take your head off. In other words, you're going to die as a result of that. So they've got a decision, tell the dream or not tell the dream. You can't tell the dream. It means sudden death. And then notice the delay tactic you got there in verse 7 to uh, 11. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. And the king answered and said, I know of certainty that ye would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore... Tell me the dream, and I will know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And then verse 11, and it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Yeah, the king says that these people are trying to delay, and um, but then um, it's not working, and the king makes it quite clear, you know, listen, it's going to be sudden death if you can't tell me the 
dream. And then what they try to do now is to appeal to the fact that what he's asking is unreasonable. Nobody would ever ask this of their wise men. And uh, it's a very rare thing anybody would do this. As a matter of fact, no man can tell you this dream except God tell it to you. Uh, you'll never know this dream. So you've got the delayed tactics. But then there's the decree that the king gives in verse 12 and 13. In verse 12 and 13 says, For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth and the wise men that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So Daniel is part of this, this group as well, who's supposed to give the king wise counsel, wise advice. Uh, but notice the king uh, insists on making a decree. He's not going to alter his, 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 his decision. Uh, there's going to be death if the dream is not interpreted. So you've got the, the decree of the king. And then you notice in verse 14 to 16, let's not read that part. You've got a delay where Daniel requests. Well, read it, please. 14. Verse 14, Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, which had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then the king's captain made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Clearly, Daniel had some influence on the king. I mean, he's not listening to the other wise men, but Daniel's able to get the delay that these men are pleading to. So there is something about Daniel's character uh, that the king senses that he's different. And remember, if you read the beginning chapters, uh, Daniel was wiser than, ten times wiser than all the wise men before. So now he's reaping the benefits of that. So he he requests um, some kind of a delay. Yes. Pastor, we have a question that's come in from a listener in Antigua. And thank you to the individual who sent it in. In order for Revelation's prophecy, in in the order of Revelation's prophecy, when will the Christians be raptured? Well, the rapture occurs before the tribulation. If you read Daniel, uh, read Revelation, you don't find reference to the church after verse after chapter three. You've got the message to the seven churches, and then after that, we are told that John is taken up uh, up uh, into the third heaven. Uh, this is clearly an indication of a type of what will take place at the rapture. But remember, uh, in the book of Thessalonians, we are not appointed to wrath. God has not appointed the church to wrath. Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 4 to the end of chapter 20, uh, you've got a display of the tribulation period and the kind of events that will take place during that period of time. The church is not part of that because the church is not appointed to wrath. The church will escape the wrath of God. The hope that we have as believers is always the hope of the Lord returning to rapture the church, to take the church up. That's the promise that we live by. That's the promise that the Apostle Paul hits home again and again and again. Uh, the fact that we will be taken out. And if you read uh, Thessalonians, by the way, uh, it, it tells you that he that hinders now hinders, but then when he's taken out of the way, then you have the the uh, the display and the dis um, the the display and the discovery of the the antichrist. He will now manifest himself. But there's a hindering force that keeps 
and the Antichrist from coming on the scene and the world from going to utter corruption, that hindering force is the Spirit of God. But when the believers are raptured, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, they are raptured, the Spirit leaves, and the whole world now no longer has that restraining power. Read Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll see that's what's going to happen. Now you said the hope that we have as believers are you saying that you're unsure that the rapture is going to happen? That that's a wishful hope? Or oh, no. The, the biblical term hope, as used in the Bible, is, is expectation. It doesn't mean something you hope for. That's the, if you check the biblical terminology and the etymology of the word, it has to do with our expectation. It has nothing to do with, well, I hope this is going to happen. That's not what it, what it means. Uh, in the biblical use of the word, it always has to do with our expectation. We expect this to happen. It's not something that we hope will happen. We know it will happen. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, the phone number is 1-268-462-7420. I realize I read that off fast, so I'm going to take a breath and read it a little slower for you. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, call 1-268-462-7420. Seven four two zero, or you can send your WhatsApp or text question to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. The name of the program is That's Truth, and tonight we are discussing Bible prophecy. Let me just encourage you: if you are enjoying Pastor Murphy's Bible teaching. Pastor Murphy is the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. If you, we're not trying to draw you away from your church if your church is teaching the Bible. But if you are looking for a Bible teaching church, we would invite you to join the members at Grace Baptist Church. And the Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. It's located on Rowan Henry Street. That's the street with the public cemetery. And Sunday school is at 9 a.m. The service is at 10 a.m. And then also a Sunday service at 7 p.m. Pastor Murphy, you are going through uh, Daniel chapter 2. Yeah, I want to continue with that. We're talking about the dream that the king experienced. We looked at the dream of the king, the demand of the king, the defense of the wise men, the decision of the king. Uh, the delay tactics that the wise men attempted, then the king made a decree, and then we looked at Daniel's um, request uh, where he asked that he be delayed um, and not take action. In verses 17 to 18, you find that they devote some time to prayer to find out what does this dream mean. He calls his friends together, and they have a time of prayer. Uh, because their life too is in jeopardy. Uh, the king is not only going to kill the magicians and the Chaldeans, he's also going to kill uh, Daniel and his friends. So a meeting is requested, and uh, they have some a time of devotion and prayer. Verse 17 and 18 indicates that. Then Daniel went into his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire the mercies of God of heaven concerning this secret, and Daniel and his fellows, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So there it is. Um, it, it, they're going to pray. They're going to ask God for mercy uh, in terms of letting them know what the dream is about. And then in verse number 19, uh, the dream is revealed. Notice what it says in verse 19. Then the secret 
Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then in verse 20 to 23, uh, you got Daniel's praise, and he praises God for three things. In verses 20 to 21, he praises God for his attributes of wisdom and power. In verses 21 and 22, he prays God for his ability to give wisdom and reveal things of darkness. And in verse 23, he thanks God for answering and revealing the dream to him. So having had the answer to prayer, that leads Daniel to praise in God for his attributes and for his ability and for his answer to the prayer request. So that's the dream as experienced in verses 1 to 23. Then in verse 24 to 28, the dream is explained what this dream means. Uh, look at verse 24, uh, the request of Daniel in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in unto Ariok, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So, so now that he has the interpretation, he makes a request, and um, the request is responded to in verse 25, the response. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known the king and the interpretation. So Ariok now... Uh, 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 acquiesces to the request of Daniel and he brings him out before the king. In verse 26, the king's reaction to that. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And then in verse 27, 28, Daniel replies, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Correct. Notice that in Daniel uh, we play. First thing he does, he exposes the failure of these occult musicians. You mean they can't help you? He's speaking facetiously, you know. He speak, and then you notice he elevates the God of heaven. There's a God of heaven that can reveal these things. And then he explains in verse 29 the very gist of what this whole thing is about. That uh, this has to do about the future. This has to do about what's coming in the last days. Uh, could you read verse 28 again and verse 29? Verse 28 says, But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And verse 29, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereunto? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Notice, keep repeating that. It has to do with the latter days and what things that will come to pass. Dwight Pentecost wrote a whole book on that things to come using this particular verse. Hmm. So Nebuchadnezzar is given some insight. This dream has to do of the future. It has to do with things that are coming to pass. And it has to do with the latter days. And uh, he's now going to give him insight what this means. You notice in verse number 30, uh, Daniel renounces all self-wisdom, what he says there. 
But as for me in this secret, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known of the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Again, uh, this would be an opportunity for Daniel to really ingratiate himself into the favor of the king. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a wise man. I can tell you what your dream is. I can interpret your dream for you. What a time to get a notch, you know, and uh, move up the scale of success and maybe be put in a position and uh, maybe even do a little bit of boasting, but not Daniel. He renounced that uh, all self-information, that he's not the source of this information. This is all credit to be given to God. He doesn't elevate himself. He speaks very meekly and very humbly and very reticent in what he's saying, but he wants the king to know the credit does not belong to him. And then in verse 31 and following, he recounts the dream. Notice that in verse 31, he describes the image. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Notice that this is a magnificent um, image that he's seeing, and, and Daniel talks about three features. First of all, it is great, magnificent, it is large. It is of excellent brightness, so this is something that is glowing and glorious. And then he said that it's terrible, something that is very, very fearful. This is the gist of what the image looked like. It was so overwhelming, uh, that uh, this image that he had. Then notice in verse 32 uh, to verse 33, you've got the details of the features of the image. Now he begins to break down the image and what he sees. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Yeah. Now he gives the details that this image, the, the head of that image is gold. He's going to explain what that means. And then you've got the breast and the arms made of silver. Then you've got the belly and the thighs made of brass. And then the legs is, is a composite. First of all, the legs are made of iron, but the feet are made of iron and made of clay. Uh, then notice in verse 34 that the destruction of the image, not only details about the image, but notice the destruction in verse 34. Thou sawest till that, was a, that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. So that's the description, how this whole thing is going to crumble. This, We'll explain what this image is shortly, but notice that a stone that is cut out, of, if you look at verse 45, it'll tell you it's cut out of the monkey without a hand, and this massive stone smites the image on its feet and uh, completely demolishes the image. Look at verse 34, uh, what it says there, last part of verse 34. Last part of verse 34. The stone... Uh, upon the feet that were of iron and clay and break them into 35, pieces. 35, read verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
There you got the description of the stone that is cut out of the mountain that uh, without any man's hand. It smites the image, not on its head, not on its belly, but on the very toes and its feet. The image is demolished, the whole thing crumbles, and then notice that the stone becomes dominant. It now fills the whole earth. Of course, I don't have to tell you who the stone is. He's the stone that was rejected. This is the Messiah that's mm-hmm. going to come back in the second coming, destroy Gentile powers, and establish his kingdom. But this is given on the image, yes. Pastor, we have a couple of questions there. That have come in from listeners. We have a WhatsApp question from Cook's Extension in Antigua. Pastor, when you give your life to Christ, can you do your hair, your nails, and wear big earrings? I uh, I wonder sometimes, to be very honest with you, if people really understand what conversion is about and the radical change that uh, salvation brings. Um, I think we have to avoid extravagance. I don't think that there's anything wrong in trying to um, fill in the potholes. You know, we paint a car, we paint a house, we want them to look attractive. I see nothing wrong if a person has a blemish to try to to deal with that. I have a problem with nails, to be very honest with you. I don't know what's the fad about nails. I think they look ridiculous. Uh, I wonder sometimes how people who got these nails, how they bathe. I wonder how they spend so much money on these type of things. Uh, I don't think it's the wise use of resources. But again, uh, it's not a moral thing in the sense that it's, you can actually say that this is this is wrong. I just think it's a matter of extravagance. I think a person can wear earring. I think a person can wear watch. Uh, but again, if you've got five earrings and you've got the ear pierced five different ways and they're hanging down and you've got one in your tongue, one in your nose, one in your belly button, to my mind, this is really, really crazy. I don't see why any Christian should want to deface the image of God that he has created. So I do have a problem with it. But there's not any biblical passage that you can actually quote to tell a person they can't do this kind of thing. There is a passage in that talks about not with um, um, braiding and not with jewelry. But that's talking about extravagance. That's not talking about a person wearing a ring or a person wearing a bracelet. That's not a person who has five rings or ten rings on a hand person who's trying to get attention. But I do feel that Christians need to be much more careful and be watchful how they dress, how they act, uh, even how they do the hair, how they, how, they, how they carry themselves. I do think that the outward man manifests the inward state. And I do believe that people need to pay more attention to these things. I think that we've become quite frivolous. We've lost identity as Christians. And you can hardly tell a believer from a non-believer these days because it's, it's so blended and I think that's a massive mistake. We only can attract if we're different. We don't attract by being like people. And it's when people see that we are different than them that that's when we, we attract. So I do think that something needs to be paid attention to that. But anytime you raise it, you always got carnal Christians who try to defend uh, this kind of behavior that I think is uh, qu- quite out of the uh, biblical co- concept of modesty. Uh, so you're going to have Christians who have all different variant views about it. I think believers ought to get the conviction from the Word of God and try when they leave home, ask themselves, if I met Jesus on the street, what would he think about me? Wow. Uh, what would he think about I think if we were to take that kind of approach, it would change some of the way we, we dress and how we act, etc., etc. Pastor, for the person who works in a job where they're not able to wear a wedding ring for safety reasons around equipment, is it a sin for them to have their wedding ring tattooed on their finger? I am not for tattoos. I must tell you that. Um, There's a verse in Scripture that warns Israel about markings in the body. Uh, I think um, that is something that you should try to avoid. It's a fad. 
and I don't know why Christians have been captivated by it. Uh, I know I don't know if people are aware that if you have too many tattoos, you can't give blood. Hmm. Uh, it, it really it limits what you can do. And later on in life, when you begin to realize that this is just a fad, and maybe you you having second thoughts or third thoughts about it, uh, sometimes it's very difficult to get it removed. So I'm not for that. I, I think that if a person is at work and they have to um, uh, can't put the ring on. I think one of the best things you can do is to let the people know in the office that you're married. You don't need a ring to tell people you're married. I think it's an indication, but I think you're, you're, everybody in your office should know that you're married. Let it be known you're married. Let the way you carry yourself in order it's married. And if you have to, uh, you're not wearing your ring, and somebody asks you why you're not wearing a ring, well, you explain to them, you know, I'm working in machines, and um, if you can get caught, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think a ring is going to define you as a married person. I think the way you carry yourself, the way you act, the way you behave, the way you respond, the way you interact with people would indicate whether you are flirting or whether you've made some very clear lines and boundaries as far as your own interrelation with people. I think that's more important than just wearing a ring on your finger. But I do think if you don't have to take it off, you should wear it because it helps people to, to know exactly where you stand. And two questions from a listener in Antigua. Pastor, what is the tribulation all about, and will people be saved during the tribulation? We will come to the tribulation as part of this series on on Bible prophecy, but generally speaking, the tribulation period is that seven-year period the Bible talks about. We'll come to it in Daniel chapter 9, and it has to do with God pouring out His judgment on planet Earth and God trying to purify the nation of Israel because she's brought back to, to her promised land in unbelief. And uh, his whole goal is to bring Israel back to himself and during the tribulation period that is going to take place. People would be saved. Uh, the Bible talks about a great multitude that no man can number that will come to the tribulation period. But how be it? Read Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It warns us that those who already have exposure to the gospel, that if they do not take advantage of the gospel while it's being preached, when the Antichrist is revealed, it is said that God will send them strong delusion that they believe the lie. So God will judicially blind uh, those who have opportunities today and who refuse to accept the gospel so that they actually embrace the Antichrist rather than accept Christ. So the, if you're living on planet Earth today and the gospel is being preached and you're not a Christian, don't assume that when these events begin to occur that you'll rush into the kingdom of God because the Bible warned you very clearly that those who do not love the truth and will not obey the truth know that when that day comes, God will send a delusion so that people believe the lie and uh, follow the Antichrist. So there's a very stern warning to seize the moment and take the opportunity while you can, and that time is now. That's why the Bible says now is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow, it's not next week, it's not a year from now or seven years from now, it is now. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you very much for those questions. And if you have a question, feel free to give us a call. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, 268-782-1454. Talking about Bible prophecy, and Pastor Murphy has been explaining the role of Daniel chapter 2. Yeah, we, we talked about the dream that was experienced by Nebuchadnezzar, and, uh, and then we had a dream explained, and now let's get the dream interpreted in given in verse 36. So what is this gold of head? What is this uh, arms and belly? 
what is this uh, thigh and what are these feet? What, what does this all symbolize? And now he is going to explain that beginning in Daniel chapter uh, 2, verse number 36 to, and following. Uh, could you read that verse? Yeah, verse 36 says, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Right, and then in verse 37 and 38, he tells you what the head means. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heavens hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field, the fowl of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. It's clear that he is the head of gold. This is the Babylonian Empire, the first Gentile power that begins the time of the Gentiles and uh, is responsible for carrying Israel into captivity. They are now dominating Israel. So the head is Babylon. There's no question about that. It's explained to him in verses 37 30 that he's the head. And then look at verse 39. It says what? And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom okay, of... Okay, don't bro- read that part yet. That's the yeah. first part of it. So notice that after Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be another kingdom, uh, and that is the silver. Remember that the, there was a, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron, and the iron and clay. So after Babylon, there's going to be another kingdom, but notice that this kingdom is going to be inferior. And notice that the material that you have there, gold, silver, is dealing with... In, and then it goes down to brass, and it goes down... It's all inferior quality. Mm-hmm. Uh but um, so Babylon is first, and then there's going to be another kingdom. And by the way, we will show you later on that this kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the empire that conquered Babylon in the book of Daniel chapter 5. So after Babylon, there came the Medo-Persian Empire. These are the silver. And then notice the next verse, part of verse 39. And another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. So a third kingdom. So there's kingdom number one, Babylon, kingdom number two, which is the silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. Kingdom number three, brass, is going to be the Grecian Empire. The Greeks are the ones that conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And later on in Daniel as well, that will be explained uh, under a different image of animals and beasts. But uh, so you've got the head Babylon, you've got the silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got the brass, which is Greece, but then notice in verse number 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh into pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Okay, so there's going to be a fourth kingdom, and the kingdom that conquered the Greece is Rome, the Roman Empire, so he's talking about the Roman Empire now, but uh, you'll notice that more time is spent on the fourth kingdom than all the others combined. And there's a reason for that, because this Roman Empire is going to be revived in the latter days. And it's going to come out in a ten form, which will come out the ten toes made of a mixture of iron and clay. Uh, but notice that, uh, first of all, when this Roman Empire, the fourth empire, the leg is made of iron. And it said two things. Iron is going to be strong. It's going to break in pieces other empires and it'll subdue the whole world. And there was no empire stronger than the Roman Empire. And uh, history will confirm that. And its military might uh, was so known and very, very, very violent 
in subduing kingdoms and other nations. So it's made of iron. But then there's another part in verse 41. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of the potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it, in of it, the strength of iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Correct. So this is now talking about you've got the feet made of iron. That's the Roman Empire. But notice that this empire goes down to the feet and the toes. It's very significant to talk about the feet and the toes. And notice no longer made of iron. It's now made of two things. It's made of iron and clay. And in verse um, 41, it explains what that means in verse 41, the iron and clay. Verse 41 says, And whereas... Thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it strength of, of iron. Yeah, the strength so of notice iron. that this, this final phase of the Roman Empire, you are going to have the, the, the military might of iron in it, no question about that. Uh, just that like the Roman Empire had tremendous military might, this final phase of the Roman Empire will have that capacity, that military capacity. But note in verse 42 something else. Not only would it be divided, what it says there in uh, verse 42 as well. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Yeah, that word broken means brittle. Hmm. So if you can imagine putting clay and iron together, the two don't mix. Uh, very well. So even though you've got this strong empire, it's still going to be a very brittle empire. And then look at verse 43 that explains why, why it is so brittle. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seeds of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Again, the seed, this is going to be a multicultural, multiracial Empire. It's going to be a combination. It's almost like a modern democracy. You've got all these other elements, racial elements, combined in this empire. So you've got this massive uh, empire, but yet it, it, it's not going to be cohesive because it's the mingling. There's, there's no one particular group saying that we're Germans or we're just English. There's a combination of European um, uh, Roman Empire resurfacing and, and resurgence made up of all the different ethnic groups. Uh, just like the, um, if you take Europe today, for example, which most people believe the EU is the beginning of this uh, particular final phase. Now, the EU has more than 10 nations together. But remember, you've got Brexit. And I am going to suggest to you that you're going to find others are going to leave the European Union as time goes on until a combination of 10 are going to be left. But the important thing here is that you've got all these different groups, the different languages, etc., the seed of women, the mingling of, of the different uh, ethnic groups. Uh, and that's where you've got the clay, and the, it's indicating that it's a multiracial, multicultural empire. And then notice verse 44. I've got a quick question. So sure. are you saying that the Bible teaches that multiracial organizations are weaker or... Is no, I am not saying that. I am just simply saying that you can't... You, like, take Europe, for example. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Europe is not... It's united, but still not united. Not unified. You, not unified. Yeah. You've got, you've got the, the... Especially with the, um, the influx of these uh, immigrants mm -hmm. as a result of the war in the Middle East where all these people came across the Middle East and now flocking into, Israel, uh, into Europe. A lot of these European countries, like Romania, has now got the, the, the barrier... 
because you can once you belong to the EU, if I can get into the EU, I can end up in a EU, EU country. But now that's creating a division because, of course, of the uh, terrorism of the Islamic movement, the, the radical Islamic movement. That's created division in, in France. It created division. In, that's why England, by the way, is coming out of Brexit because the terrorism, they're afraid of that. You can, you can come in way into Germany, you can come in from France or, or another place, you can end up, or Romania, you can end up into England because as a part of you, you have free movement. So that has caused a division. That's why you've got Brexit and you've got other European countries now who want to get out and who are concerned about the policy that they adopted of t- allowing all of these immigrants to come in who can be very violent. Um, that is creating a division. So even though it seems as though you're talking about the EU, is not a compact, unified, coherent group. You've got diverse views, and each government want to do what's best for their country, not so much for the European community. And I think that's why England is coming out, because England wants to be in control of their foreign policy, control of their immigration policy. They don't want other countries deciding who comes to their country. Uh, like Antigua wouldn't want that either. <laughs> but uh, that's why it's saying that it's mingling with all of these different ethnic groups, different languages. I mean, the Frenchman is not an Englishman. A German is not an Englishman. And by the way, if you know the wars of Europe, that England and France warred before Germany. I don't have to tell you about the First and Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you've got these groups that are coming together to form this Tento kingdom, which you'll find in the Book of Revelation referred to Ten Horns. They're going to be formed out of the old Roman Empire, but it's not going to be a. Co- but they have tremendous power, no question, military might. But it's not a cohesive empire because got all these different groups there, and each one, even though they're part of the group, they've got their own um, goals and policies. And then, if you look at verse um, number forty-four, yeah, read that to me for just a minute. And in the days of these kings, no, read, read verse forty-three, the last 43, part. Okay, 43, yeah. Uh, let's see. The second half of forty-three says, "But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed right. with clay." Right, they're not cohesive. It's not a cohesive empire, even though you've got military might there. All right, and in verse number forty-four, notice that this final. Uh, Phase what it says there, and in the days of these kings. Now underline that word. These, these what kings. kings? See, okay. now remember that uh, you're talking about uh, the kingdoms before, but now you come to this chapter, verse number forty-four. It's talking about, and by the way, that comes after the mention of the toes that are made of clay and made of iron, and uh, you'll find later, later in Revelations. These ten toes are referred to as ten horns, and these are the ten kingdoms. But it's, it's important to mention here kings, not king before. He's talking, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the king. But now he's coming down there talking a confederacy made of kings. That's why in the final phase of the Roman Empire, you'll have these ten nations forming uh, that, that core group. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is where now the, in that t- final phase of revival, Roman Empire, the ten toes, the kingdom of God comes in and the stone strikes the image on the toes and destroys the whole image. That's why I say to people, we have to be reading the newspapers and reading your Bible because there is going to be a revival of the, the Roman Empire, and uh, that will take place at the final phase of Gentile power. Now, remember, if you check European history, 
kings have always been trying to revive the Roman Empire. And for example, the, the Kaisers of Germany. And the word Kaiser, by the way, means Caesar. He tried to create what's called the Holy Roman Empire. Then you had Char- uh, Charlemagne, uh, the French uh, king, who tried to create, uh, again, the Roman Empire. Napoleon tried to create the, the revival of the Roman Empire, failed. Even Bismarck tried to create the Roman Empire. And don't forget, Hitler's whole dream was to create a whole, uh, the whole Roman Empire where he, he actually, it's called the Third Reich, right? Because that was to be the third phase of the Roman Empire. So all of these European leaders at some point in time in the past have tried to create this revival of the uh, the Roman Empire that was there, and that remains the ambition uh, of these European powers to create this massive uh, empire to dominate the world. And the Bible says that's going to be the final phase, and then the, the, the stone comes and strikes the image on the feet, bringing this whole thing to a collapse. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have 12 minutes left in this episode. And if you have a question, go ahead and send it in quickly so that we have a chance to answer it. But we are discussing tonight the topic of Bible prophecy, or I should say continuing to discuss. Last week, there was Pastor Murphy spent the time giving us an overview of Bible prophecy. And tonight, he's getting more into the details and the nitty-gritty, and specifically Daniel chapter 2 and its role in prophetic history or in prophecy. Yes, yeah, so what we have in Daniel chapter is a panoramic survey of world history from Babylonian times until the Lord returns and Christ sets up his kingdom and destroys the Gentile powers. It's amazing that the, uh, that we can have this detailed panoramic view. And by the way, we now have history to look back on these different kingdoms, and it's not a matter of speculation. We know that Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. We know that the Greeks destroyed the uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, and we know that the Romans destroyed the Greeks and set up the empire. So these are the four global empires that the Bible talks about the time of the Gentiles. But the final phase is where the feet and toes uh, of clay and uh, iron are going to be the final manifestation of the Roman Empire. So it will be revived as they've made several attempts. This is going to happen, and we need to keep looking to what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the Middle East. Don't worry too much about America because uh, I don't find in Scripture there's any reference, direct reference to America. Mm. And America, even though it's a dominant power, it is not a monarchy. It's not a, in other words, America hasn't conquered the world. It can conquer the world if it wanted to. It has enough power to do that. But it's never tried to conquer Europe to take over Europe or conquer the military, take over the Middle East. Uh, there has never been the ambition, uh, even though it's interfered, I must say, in a lot of countries all over the world, but it's never been to take over territory and, and claim other countries for themselves. The Roman Empire was different. It was to completely dominate the world and own uh, the real estate when they, wherever they went and dominated. You know, as we were reading earlier in uh, Chapter 2, my mind went to Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel was telling him this prophecy and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold and everything after you is inferior to you in some sense. Can you imagine how easy it would have been for Nebuchadnezzar to become proud? Well, you will find later on that um, even though he's told this prophecy that he is going to be displaced, later on you're going to find that he walks in Babylon and he boasts, is this not great Babylon that made? So it got to his head even. And of course, you remember the Bible said that God sent him into the wilderness where 
uh, he lost his mind and he ate grass like an ox until his, his very hair of his head became like feathers and his fingernails became like claws and he had to be humbled and it was only after seven years that he was humbled that uh, the king's mind was restored when he acknowledged the God of heaven and said, you know, I acknowledge that he is the God of heaven and he gives the kingdom to whoever. So I, uh, there's no doubt that uh, being the head, he, he probably um, put a feather in his hat and became very proud, but God had, God had to humble him, and he was humbled later on in, in the book of Revelation. And the other thing, Nathan, is that later on the Lord is going to reveal even further uh, what these kingdoms are about, which king will, kingdom will replace each kingdom. You'll find that Greece will replace Medo-Persian. That will be given under f- uh, four animals. One is a bear, one is a lamb, one is a bear, one is a leopard, and one is a, a nondescript that is a combination of all the others. Same four kingdoms, but under different images, and giving you more details. Remember the law of recurrence? Yeah. Right, that's the law of recurrence. Same kingdoms, but more information is added uh, including what will happen. Now, we started down this path in talking about Daniel chapter 2 in reference to the time of the Gentiles. Uh, so are all ten of these kingdoms the time of the Gentiles? I mean, excuse me, all of all the way from the gold head all the way to the clay toes? Or how does... Where does the time of the Gentiles fit into that? Well, that's the entire period of the time of the Gentiles is from the Babylonian kingdom until the kingdom of this world are wrapped up. So you will notice that the image is one image. You'll notice that there is a blending, and in actual fact, that is what happens. One kingdom conquers it, but absorbs it. One, and absorbs it, but you're absorbing from Babylonian, being absorbed by the Medo-Persians, being the Persian absorbed by the Greeks, the Greek. By, so you've got, uh, it's almost like a continuity lead into a final climax where you've got the, the, the goal and the toes. So in actual fact, the, the Gentile kingdoms are seen as one, and they're just different, and one that conquers absorbs the other and passes it on, it goes on and goes on and goes on. Even today, by the way, Western civilization um, is predominantly Greek. Whether you like it or not, the Greek philosophy, Greek thinking mm. pervades it. And uh, you've got Roman law, most of the laws that are made, and the, the road system, a lot of that is absorbed from the, the Roman Empire. Uh, so it's a really a continuity. Now, you keep referencing the time of the Gentiles. Maybe, and I know there's confusion on this, and maybe mm-hmm. this is a much bigger topic than we have to cover in seven minutes, but who are the Gentiles? Well, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So then maybe the question is, who are the Jews? <laughs> the Jews are special people selected by God coming through the line of Abraham, where God, uh, you go back to the book of Genesis, where the whole world had become totally corrupt after 2,000 years of human history. And the, the, the knowledge of God was lost. We find in Joshua that uh, the Lord tells um, Joshua in reciting the whole history of Israel, tells Israel that God chose their forefathers who was Abraham when they worship idols. So God in his sovereignty when the world had gone away from the truth chooses a one man called Abraham and out of that man Abraham God decides to create the Jewish nation out of the Jewish nation the Messiah would come. The ultimate goal of choosing Abraham was not just for the Jews themselves ultimately was the world redemption to redeem humankind but God had to choose somebody and he chose the Jews. Is that not unfair to everyone else? I, they, what if you'd call what if you'd call the Americans? 
would that be unfair? He has to choose somebody, and God in His sovereignty makes that choice. Uh, we have to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that He is sovereign, and uh, we can't dictate to God what He does. All we understand that the Jews are conduit whereby the entire world would hear the gospel. So it's not just selecting the Jews uh, just for their own well-being. It is actually that the Jews would have been a centripetal force to draw the nations to Israel. And of course, we know that Israel failed. And you read the book of uh, Romans. God has taken the Gentiles and broken off the natural branches and set them aside for his purpose and grafted us Gentiles in. So now we Gentiles, the church, has now got the mission that the Jews had. Jews were the centripetal force to bring people in. We are a centrifugal force that goes out to reach the world. And the same object is this. The church is not an end in itself. It is designed to carry the glad tidings and news to the entire world. So we must not get so wrapped up in um, becoming insular as a church and oh, we just focus on worship. And that's, that's not what the church is about. The church is about reaching men for Christ and bringing people into the kingdom. When we lose our purpose and we don't fulfill our mission, Paul warns us that we one day will be cut off and we, we, the Jews will be grafted back in. Of course, we know that will take place when the church is taken out. But we must not be proud, like he, he tells us in the book of uh, Romans, uh, don't be proud because the, gen, the Jews were broken off and we grafted in. Uh, we got a responsibility. They failed and God set them aside. The church got to be careful that it doesn't fail and God set it aside. And uh, Paul warns about that in the book of, um, the book of uh, Romans. You referenced the gospel. Is there more than one gospel, or I, sh- I should say one true gospel? And if so, or what is the true gospel? Well, uh, something happened uh, sometime last year. I learned about uh, some pastor in St. Vincent uh, preaching about two gospels, did a track, I saw the track, and his argument was that Peter had one gospel and Paul had one another gospel. Now, if that were so, it would mean that one of them would be teaching heresy, and one of them would be damned and accursed because Paul said, if anybody preach any other gospel, let him be accursed, mm-hmm. and let him be anathema. So there cannot be more than one gospel. There's only one gospel. And by the way, if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 4, you see that Paul says that the gospel is even preached to Abraham. The gospel basically is the matter that we are right with God, and we have the righteousness of God imputed to us on the basis of faith. The Old Testament, those people were saved by looking towards the Messiah, that he was going to come. Today we are saved by looking back on the fact that the Messiah has come. So it's always been the principle of faith, and by putting our faith in God, we always have God's righteousness imputed to us. So there's only one gospel, and uh, that gospel from beginning to the end centers around the Messiah, uh, one looking forward to him, one looking back on him, but it's all about what he did for us on the cross when he died for us. So in order to be a Christian, I have to say a certain prayer? No, it's not a matter of saying it's a prayer. In order to be a Christian, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you, you can say all the prayers you want to say, but if you haven't repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, you cannot be saved. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we are very thankful that you have taken the time to join us for this episode of That's Truth. Now, Pastor Murphy, we've got two minutes left in the program. 
probably not enough time to delve into the 70 weeks of Daniel, but any closing thoughts that you want to share that uh, expound or kind of tie things up that we've been discussing tonight? I was at a recent conference in uh, St. Vincent um, where they're trying to revive the Bible school there, and a gentleman who had been to uh, Israel uh, was recounting his experience in Israel, and um, he revealed some things that uh, are quite shocking. One of the things that he mentioned about is that there is the Temple Institute in in Israel. You can actually go into that particular place and see that the Jews are planning to rebuild the temple. Uh, they've got the cutlery made, the spoons, the, the chalices, all of that is made. Uh, they've got the garments already designed, the high priest garments. Uh, this is not something that is fictitious. You can actually go to Israel. He's actually been there, and he's actually seen these things for himself. And there are two things that the Israel are waiting right now, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you've probably heard about that, but that's what they need, the Ark of the Covenant, because that's where the Shekinah glory was. They're waiting, And the other thing that they're trying to get is what is called the red heifer, because part of the purification of the, te- the temple required the, the red heifer, the blood of the red heifer. Uh, but I think that when I heard all of these details, and uh, he actually said he saw these things, it made me keenly aware of how close we are uh, to midnight, because according to Second Thessalonians, the temple is going to be rebuilt. The Antichrist will take over the temple. When we come to Gen- uh, Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks, you'll find that the Antichrist is going to make a seven-year pact with Israel. And in the midst of those seven years, three and a half years, he breaks the covenant, he stops the sacrifice and the oblation, and he creates what is called the abomination of desolation. Now, if our if time is coming to an end, uh, or I shouldn't say time coming to an end, but if the rapture is coming close, if we're in the eleventh hour, what should that be a motivation to us to be doing? Should we be relaxing? We should be living it up, or what should we be doing, Pastor? Well, one thing I think we should be doing is clean up our lives. You know, if you ever had your mom away and she told you to keep the house clean until she gets back, you play along. But when you know that that time is coming, you do some work, you, you, you clean the bedroom, you sweep the house. And that's why the Bible says, every man that has his hope purifies himself. Thank you very much for that teaching tonight, Pastor. Thank you for joining us on the program. We are really honored that you took the time to join us. And we look forward to having you join us next week, next Tuesday evening on the program, when we will continue this topic, speaking specifically about the 70 weeks mentioned in the book of Daniel and what that means and what its role is in Bible prophecy. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. God bless you. Keep serving him faithfully. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. 
If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.